This is Steve Smith at the California Western School of Law, and I call the Law Review to order. It's New Year's, and today our legal roundtable takes a look back at the major developments of 2013 and a look forward at 2014. We welcome our roundtable to discuss the legal topics this past year. Judge Kenneth Medell, Attorney John Fisk of the Gomez Law Firm, and Wendy Patrick, JD PhD, attorney and teacher. Welcome and Happy New Year, everybody. I know you're here speaking as individual educators and not as representatives of your office. What a year it has been. Uh, so we're, I appreciate your coming to the Law Review to take a look back. So what do you think the most important or interesting sto legal story of the year was? You know, I'll, I'll kick us off here by uh, kind of making a, a general statement about 2013. There have been so many fascinating cases that, you know, preparing for this, I know that we were all sort of struggling with, which one do we talk about? I mean, we had everything from George Zimmerman to Ariel Castro. We had the civil law cases and all the challenges to the existing laws. You know, I have to say, we're, we're sort of ending the year with one of the most fascinating legal issues that I think we've talked about in a while, which is the whole Duck Dynasty, um, you know, controversy. I'll call it a controversy over the last couple of weeks. Um, but there's, and you know, I, we can't forget the affluenza defense. And I, for some reason, I we'll come back to that because right. I hadn't heard about it until you told me. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's, there's probably a lot to choose from. Um, I, I'll probably open it up to some of my colleagues here with those comments. So many. Well, let's take the real quick one. Is there any legal issue there? Well, there's there's some um, quasi legal issues in every one of these controversies, <laughs> but there perhaps is not. The First Amendment issue that we once thought. Judge Well, I understand that that guy, I hope I'm on the same page for the overview. I believe there was a television show having to do with all the Duck Dynasty, and it's, uh, I, I just learned about this, sponsored or uh, hosted by kind of a mountain man looking type of guy, who ended up um, being interviewed by a magazine. Uh, and during the interview, they asked him about morality. Now, I don't know whether they asked him morality vis-a-vis hunting or what, what the question was, but his response was, well, if you really want to talk about Morally and moral conduct, and that's not uh, focus on homosexuality. That he found to be immoral, along with other acts of what he believed to be perversion associated with um, homosexuality. And for that, he suffered some consequences, namely being asked to leave the show, etc. I understand dated in the show most recently, but uh, the controversy roused around uh, centered around his free speech, speech rights, uh, whether they were. Of rage, or whether it was appropriate to punish him for his thoughts. Well, let's just take a quick look at the First Amendment. I have my Constitution right here, and I notice it says Congress shall make no law, meaning also the states for about reasonable But this wasn't Congress abridging this, or the government abridging his free speech rights. That's right, and that's why uh, early on there was sort of some. No, it's always interesting to talk about the government and free speech. I mean, that's always interesting, even if it doesn't directly apply to the case at issue. Obviously, he spoke to GQ magazine, and it was A E that suspended him indefinitely. Then, of course, reinstated him last Friday. But what I found fascinating about this controversy is it really gave us the opportunity to talk about a lot of these issues on both sides of the fence. You know, and sometimes it's not so much the original dispute, if you will but the opportunity that it then gives us in the court of public opinion. So that's why that was on one of the ones on the top of my list. So, but the First Amendment would not apply to a and &E. uh, they, they can violate somebody's free speech if they want to. So there's an employment issue, I suppose, or a contractual issue, 
if they said, uh, like, if you do anything too controversial, we can fire you. That would be a violation of the First Amendment. Is there not a government? I think Jack can probably step in on this if there's an issue as to whether or not there's not many components of law determination that remain extant so that's in our civil law. However, there is this thing rolling around in my brain having to do with uh, someone being punished for speaking up as to public policy, um, reporting uh, illegalities in the, in the workplace and those sorts of things. And this sort of like feels like that a little bit, no matter what position you take in terms of the merits of, of his statement, his right to speak out on that in a private forum somewhere else and, and then being punished in, 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 even in a private institution seems to run across kind of a, a civil uh, civil violation somehow. I don't know. Yeah, there could always be a potential uh, opportunity for a wrongful death. I'm sorry, for a wrongful termination lawsuit. But certainly, I think the I think there is a legal issue, and it's a contractual legal issue. I'm sure there is a very extensive contract between the entire Robertson family, including Phil Robertson and A and E, which includes the way that they uh, perceive they are perceived in the general public since they are celebrities at this point. So, um, so there'll be more of that coming, I suspect, this year. I don't think we've heard the last of it, and I think he's, as you say, he's been reinstated. That's the latest. So, Judge Bedell, what do you think is the most interesting or important thing this year? Well, I, I don't want to get too far afield of what I actually know about, but uh, Obamacare seems to be the thing that really permeated our culture from the beginning to the end, and it uh, became apparent to me that. Um, after the Supreme Court um, said it was appropriate, and we talked about that in the previous show, about saying, you know, uh, it, it's appropriate to tax someone in order to uh, help support medical care, and if they don't pay the tax, well, uh, they, can, they can get an exemption if they uh, plan for health care. That's kind of how we left it at our last hearing. But now, how that has become really a sword uh, held back by the conservatives in Congress to prevent a whole budget. Uh, from moving forward, a budget impasse using Obamacare as, hey, we'll, we'll pass a budget if you just repeat, promise to repeal Obamacare. Well, I guess they were saying we will pass a budget that doesn't include the funding for Obamacare. Exactly, exactly. And and then later, that wasn't, yeah. And then later it evolved to um, all of these sort of polite clubs and, uh, and discoordination of the actual program, the implementation of the program. Well, what's interesting is that the um, Failed, I'll call it a failed or a somewhat failed launch of Obamacare and the website itself. It seems like 2014 is going to be a very interesting uh, mid mid presidential election. And if there are, if there is a swing in the Senate, uh, probably not the Congress, but at least the Senate over to the Republicans, they could enact some law that tries to repeal the Obamacare decision and what the Supreme Court did. And of course, the president can can veto. Those laws, but it would probably be mean vetoing a lot of stuff if that uh, if, if that happens. Actually, another element of that's related to Judge uh, Miguel to, to what you said is the Senate changing the rules on filibuster, and that's a procedural change. Well, I'm going to say this a couple of times, but because it's been a reminder this year that the procedure is neutral. I mean, it may give somebody an advantage for a moment, but it has a way of uh, being a two-edged sword that can cut. The people who are in our posterior. Exactly. Yeah. So that's been another change related to the kind of congressional gridlock, if you will. Right. And, well, uh, but I will say that there are some, uh, at least uh, 
hope of optimism in that because I don't really care whether you're a, a Democrat or Republican. Um, there is, in my assessment, uh, an idea that the rich uh, spoils go to the, to the, to the victim. And um, our government is so paralyzed that when um, someone becomes president, I think they should have the right to nominate who they want to fill these, in particular, judicial posts. And so the end of the filibuster to prevent appropriate candidates from being moved through Congress, I think, is an appropriate thing, whether across the board, whether it's Democrat or, or Republican. Now, certainly there's going to be those candidates, as we've seen in the past, among them that was controversial was Justice Bork. That will, that will, by their very nature, raise some huge controversy and hue and cry, but let that play out the way it is. I don't think these procedural maneuvers are really appropriate when we, when we all know, working in the justice system ourselves, we need these things to keep moving to provide appropriate justice to our, to our And system. as you say, I think it's going to work both, I think it will work both ways with both parties. So, John, what did you think was the most interesting? Well, I have two lawsuits that were the most interesting to me, and they both, uh, one's criminal and one's civil, and they both surrounded technology and the way that the law is reacting, albeit slowly, to technology. The first is a very recent case um, that involves 12 different class action lawsuits that were filed all over the country uh, against Target, because Target was the victim itself, quite frankly, of a breach of security between November 27th and December 15th. And 40 million Target customers in that three-week period um, had their, their credit card and uh, personal information accessed at the point of sale at Target stores. And 12 cross-action lawsuits have been filed on behalf of uh, this 40 million class to basically sue Target for failing to protect their credit card information. So uh, what is interesting to me about that is that a couple of senators have stepped up, like politicians always do, and put pressure on the uh, United States Trade Commission to basically force them to, uh, you know, go after Target and impose some sanctions. However, there's a question right now about whether the Trade Commission has that level of power. And if not, uh, the United States Senate and, and Congress as a whole may try to pass some laws that give teeth to some of these federal agencies to really put the hammer on some stores that may or may not have been doing what they could have been doing to protect that much information. So does this come down to a claim that Target was careless in the way it handled the information by not securing it adequately? Is that the same the negligence? Yeah, yeah, essentially. And practically what happens is a class action attorney's out there and says there was a breach. Therefore, there must have been something that went wrong. And then, they, once they get into discovery, they'll find something that Target did not do that they probably could have done in terms of securing the information, and then say, aha, see, there's the negligence. And, and the negligence isn't, isn't that they weren't perfect, but it is that they were careless in some way. They didn't do what others, for example, what others commonly would be doing to protect. Is that essentially what comes to Either commonly or at least state-of-the-art. They may make the argument that Target is such a large retailer and this was the second largest breach in U.S. retail history at the tune of $40 million. So they could have and should have done something. Moreover, they didn't catch it for three weeks. So that, that is where I see a case really being made is that if they didn't catch something soon enough, they could have caught, or if they could have caught it sooner, they would have had less of a problem. I think another interesting issue is, what are the damages? Yeah, your information has been accessed, uh, your credit card information, an encrypted PIN number, Maybe your date of birth, maybe some CVV number, 
So you, you call up your credit card company, you cancel your credit card, they send you a new one in the mail in two or three days. If no money has been stolen from an individual's account, and some people have had their money stolen, but if you're one of probably 99% of the people that didn't have their, their money stolen, are the damages inconvenienced? And if so, what are the damages? Mm -hmm. Even if it's a dollar a person, it's still a $40 million class. That's a lot, yeah, that's yeah. a lot. It'll be interesting to follow. That's probably a year or two away before that. You think? Yeah, I think it'll be a year or two away before the class and any laws are passed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, when you mentioned something called affluenza, uh, which uh, I, since you mentioned it a couple of days ago, I've, I've seen it two or three times. It is one of the strange, well, it's got two components. There's a social component, it's just the way sociologists or anthropologists can look at, at, right. at society. But there's a, a criminal component as well. But, you know, what's interesting about affluenza, the, the term was coined years ago, right? Not, not to be used in a criminal court to mitigate punishment, right? That was never the intent in sort of coining this, this um, different perspective, different way of looking at the world, depending on the way you were raised. In a just for a shortcut, Generally means sort of a dysfunction associated with being associated with a lot of wealth and not well, having to take right. responsibility. And, and not having to take responsibility, exactly. And you know, that probably wasn't exactly the way it was originally intended, you know, certainly when it was first written about, but it got into the spotlight this year, of course, with Ethan Couch's case, and then that's the young man that was driving drunk and ended up sadly getting into an accident, killing a couple people, seriously injuring some some others. Um, pled guilty, okay, he's a juvenile, but that we don't know as much as we would like to about the case because obviously he was not tried as an adult, which means a lot of the proceedings are kept confidential. But even from what we do know, we know that he fessed up, right, said I did it. Um, the affluenza, so it's really not so much of a defense as something that was brought in to mitigate the level of punishment to get him sent to a Newport Beach Rehabilitation Center instead of going to prison for 20 years like the prosecutor was asking for. And that, you know, hence comes the outrage publicly at the fact that that should not have been mitigated so much, particularly in light of the fact that affluenza wasn't the defense in the case, and that's not what he's, he's not going to rehab to learn how to manage his money or, or be more responsible, it's a rehab for substance abuse. So these are some of the, the hot button issues that have surrounded this controversy and sort of blown it up into it, what it is today, where people don't really even know where the term came from, they only know how it was used in this particular case, which many people think is unjust. I can hear one of my classmates uh, back in Iowa saying, let me see if I've got this straight. <laughs> so if you're poor and disadvantaged, that's a mitigation. Which is but ironic. You're rich, you're, there's a mitigation too, because you get to learn how to... Yeah, which is right. ironic because we've heard it being used the absolute opposite. Well, this is because poverty played a role in this. So it's really kind of turns on its head the way in which we normally see factors used in mitigation. You know, there's a Alfred Hitchcock movie called Woke, in which some very um, well-educated, highbrow, um, about college age or a little bit beyond uh, guys that do a murder. And it's a, a fabulous movie, uh, technically, to be a shot with one without ever seeing the camera. It's, it's well, there is that thing. And, and, and it has that feel to it that they could have been found not uh, either or had their sentences mitigated but which was the fact that uh, they had an appropriate um, delusion that they were above the law due to their affluence. You know, I, mean, I think that's what one of these uh, the way that they're That sounds like most of the uh, acts of 
corporate America at the large terminal level to be asked And some of our celebrities uh, that we see. Well, it ties right into this issue of celebrity criminals. And Ethan Couch was not a celebrity. He became a celebrity because of the defense, quote-unquote, that was used. And then, of course, people say, oh, it's like the Twinkie defense. Well, that's not quite true because, you remember, what was the Twinkie defense? It was never called by that name in court. But that was an issue of diminished capacity. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. it was you know, negating an element of a crime, not saying, yeah, you did it, but... You know, yeah, this wasn't wasn't a defense. This was only to reduce the level of punishment. Yes, it, it's true, and you know, it's being tossed around as the after one's a defense. Where I suppose you could say it's you know a defense against serious punishment. You know, I, and we're laughing about this case, but it really there were no winners in this case, and everybody really when when we get home, everyone is grieved for not only the Couch family, for the families of the victims. You know the survivors. I mean, there are no. It's one of those cases where nobody wins. As I'm sure Judge Medell can, you know, uh, appreciate as a judge, somebody's always going to lose. But this is a case in which everybody lost. Yeah, I think including the law, because I don't know what the facts really were, what led to it. But but the fact that we're laughing about it and comparing it with the Twinkie defense, it's the sort of thing that erodes a little bit people's respect for the law. And and one of the sad things is that we we don't know enough. Whether it's, it's another one of those. Uh, McDonald's coffee, because we just don't know all the facts, and once we, I suspect it makes a lot more sense once we do know all of it. And you know, sort of from a psychological standpoint, sometimes, you know, there are sort of uh, dark humor aspects of some of these that get us talking. And the fact that we are talking about, you know, should this have been used as a defense, what are the mitigants, you know, how could we make sure that justice is served you know, in the future, and, and and I'm, you know, only one side of this. I know that I've seen lots of people on TV that have spoken up and said, you know what, rehabilitation, especially for a juvenile, that is the goal. And I can't, you know, we can't argue with that either. So there are equities on both sides of all these issues, but they're fun issues to talk about because they raise so many of these points. Essentially dealing with the problems where they exist. Right. Especially for juveniles. Yeah, especially for juveniles. Well, today, along with you, we are talking with Judge Kenneth Fidel, Attorney John Fisk, and Attorney Wendy Patrick. So, uh, what do you think was the biggest surprise of the year? Well, in my opinion, um, the biggest surprise was the, the repetition of the horrible um, slaying of schools and other acts of mass violence and the complete um, lack of power that anyone has in enacting any form of gun uh, control. Even something as simple as a, a simple background check was. Um, not able to pass through the very powerful gun lobby. And um, it, uh, I'm not taking a position where we are, but I, I will say it sure seemed like the momentum was strongly moving toward changes in the way that we regard guns in this country, and it just didn't happen. That was the biggest surprise. Yeah. When, you know, um, I, I think, gosh, again, I could probably go with a, a number of different topics. Um, I do think it is surprising how much gun violence has increased in such a short amount of time. But one of the things that surprised me the most was in this year alone, we saw more instances of misreporting using social media. We used to believe, you know, that now we have these great reporting, you know, um, methods online and it's so much easier to transmit information. You may recall with respect to the Sandy Hook shooting, there was an enormous amount of very serious misreporting. Not, I shouldn't use the word misreporting, it were hackers. So we now have these, you know, we all have our own Twitter feeds and we have our own Facebook and the rest of our social media accounts that we pretty much thought were safe or should we ever have thought that? The Target scandal only, you know, reinforces this really um, 
surprising amount of misinformation that we've seen this year alone. And I have to say, when you combine it with one of the other things that I, I did think was surprising is how much in, in 2013, I would even add 2012 to this, we have seen this repetition. They're not really copycat crimes, right? Because they're all a little bit different and you don't have any indication that they were inspired all of a sudden. But um, there's just really an element of an escalation of, of violence that is, is horribly disheartening. I wish you could think of something more positive to say that was a surprise in 2013, but those are some of the things that struck me as well. Well, mine aren't too positive either. Oh. <laughs> and, and so these were all bad surprises. Oh, no. I've got I've got two uh, surprises, legal surprises. The first is that upon January 1st, 2013, I would have told you that 20 women would have come out against a former United States congressman and acting current mayor for allegations of sexual harassment that would lead to his resignation. I would have said, that sounds a little far-fetched to me. But it happened in Bob Filner. Also, what was surprising to me uh, was the end of an extremely long saga of a criminal case uh, regarding Richard Tewitt. Richard Tewitt is the man um, that was accused and convicted uh, of killing Stephanie Crow and was placed into jail and served almost 16, 17 years of his sentence. And if you study the background and the criminal history of this case, it goes over almost two decades, and it involves about five different lawsuits. Uh, the first lawsuit was against uh, Michael Crow and two of his sons. I'm sorry, two of his friends. Michael Crow is the brother of Stephanie Crow. That was dropped by the district attorney. The case was then sent basically over to the state attorney general's office, who tried the case against uh, Richard Tewitt. Uh, got him successfully convicted. That went up and down the appeal process and was retried. Uh, in that time span, uh, there was also a civil lawsuit uh, from the family, the Crow family, against the Oceanside and I think maybe Escondido Police Departments. That went up and down the appeals process and then settled for $7.25 million. And here we are. And then there was a, a an opinion by... Um, the settlement was because those boys had been wrongfully charged. Yes, thank you. They had been wrongfully charged and, and essentially... They, they took the prosecution too far. And then there was a finding uh, by a very well-respected judge of actual factual innocence uh, of Michael Crow. So out of all of that, we have essentially nobody killing Stephanie Crow. And nobody's been convicted. Lots of trials or charges at least floating around. So now this is the year, so it's now time for you to tell us who did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was surprising. Yeah, but I think both yeah. of those were... Uh, was surprising. Uh, I will say this also, just as a footnote, that law school admissions are down. Well, I, you know, that is my surprise. Actually, surprise uh, of, of not so much that law school admissions are down, because uh, I've been during the course of this year doing a lot of study of the history of legal education, and this is very cyclical. In fact, the first time I saw an effort to control the number of lawyers, because there were too many lawyers being doing, was 1750. Uh, and which the bar of the state of New York tried to preclude people from accepting uh, anyone other than their own sons as uh, apprentices, and they were just the way they were trained for the bar. And, and we've had a lot since, but my surprise is sort of the way that has been treated uh, because it, it is so cyclical. This is a downside, it's a very serious downside, the cycle, but this happens with economic downturns. I think they were at the end of World War II, only in 1940. Four, forty-five, and there were only six thousand lawsuits in America. So, it, and there were more serious downturns. 
but the, the screaming and yelling uh, associated with it has, and this is unprecedented. Well, it's not at all unprecedented. Uh, it happens a lot, and, and it's a tough time for legal education, tough time for the legal profession in many respects, although I think the profession is kind of coming out of it a little bit now. But my biggest surprise was not so much that there was a downturn, because that's essentially not surprising. I mean, I, it will go back up. It would be surprising if it didn't go back up. But, uh, but the hysteria associated with it. And, and, and uh, I, as, by the end of the year, I concluded I shouldn't have been surprised by even the hysteria because I now have a, uh, my little pile of cataclysmic literature that always accompanies uh, 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 these downturns. So, well, there's a, there's a, a, a silver lining. Oh, good. That's, That's what I saw. Or that, that we were down 11% in our law students compared to 2012. Yep. 24% compared with 2010, right. but we still have more than we need. <laughs> we're still 20 to 25% higher than what we actually need in well, society. You know, so we're actually, we're okay. We're getting we're happy. happy. No, we're I know not. I'm not hysterious. I'm not, I'm not panicked. Uh, <laughs> but, but actually, we have to have a program uh, on this very issue because for uh, generations, almost a, a very substantial portion of those who complete law school don't spend their whole careers practicing law. It is a great training for a variety of things, and many, uh, many people in law practice for a couple of years, do something else. But we, we're going to we're going to come back to that, uh, folks. So stay tuned in 2014. And speaking of 2014, before we uh, uh, have to we call it a, a year, um, what predictions, if any, do you have for for 2014? Well, in 2014, I think that uh, there will be an uptick in some of the controversy and dialogue over SeaWorld. Um, the case that happened in 2013 that's interesting is that the federal OSHA agency cited SeaWorld for a violation of essentially making sure that their employees are safe. In other words, SeaWorld, you're not keeping your employees safe because you're putting them in the water with these animals called killer whales. So, so the safety of the trainers, uh, there's also an issue regarding the safety or living circumstances of the animals. Exactly. And I think that the two occurring at the same time with the release of the uh, very famous documentary Blackfish, in addition to the death of, the tr of this trainer, in addition to this OSHA violation, which has been um, you know, argued in front of the D.C. Court of Appeals, I think there's going to be some, some very interesting and serious uh, discussion, whether it be legal or political or animal rights uh, uh, centered over SeaWorld in 2014. Interesting. You know, uh, part of the interest that I had in 2013, of course, included the Zimmerman case for a lot of reasons. But as a trial attorney, I mean, it was a fascinating case on so many levels. But one of the things that ties into my prediction is they sequestered the jury. Now, how frequently do we see in this day and age a jury sequestered? And, you know, sequestration, for those not, you know, intimately familiar with that, I mean, that means I don't get to keep my smartphone and text through the trial. I have to hand it over. Can you imagine if I said, okay, guys, everybody put their phones on the table. I'm going to take them. I'll give them back to you next month or next week. You better be kidding me. You wouldn't turn that stuff over. I mean, it's, we are so tied to, to so much of the outside world through such, you know, uh, easy gadgets. And it's so easy to keep tuned in. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw more jury sequestration on some of the bigger cases particularly in light of what I mentioned earlier is, you know, you there's how many sources do you need to read something from 
before you're now allowed to, to believe it's not a hacker, it's it's legit. I can just see the automatic email response. I've been sequestered right. and won't be able to respond to email for several months. <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating. It's, I know we used to use that remedy in more trials yeah. than we do today, but I feel like it may be coming back given the almost total inability, even if you tried, to shield yourself from public opinion. Yes, I'm going to throw in uh, a topic that uh, seems to be in uh, constant uh, evolution, and that's the gay rights and the gay marriage topic. Now, I found out that New Mexico recently became the 17th state, which includes the, uh, Washington, D.C., uh, to legalize gay marriage. And uh, it just seems like in the wake of that United States versus Windsor case that overturned the Defense of Marriage Act, that the trend is just moving almost inexorably. And whether you like it or don't like it, it seems that that's the way the trend, the trend is moving. And uh, I've seen more and more states adopting uh, uh, measures to legalize it. Those are all great. I'll add one more, which is I think there's a brewing battle over presidential authority, uh, presidential orders. Uh, that it's been it's been just under the surface for a while, but now there are a number of areas in which uh, there are going to be people standing to challenge presidential orders, whether it's uh, environmental regulations or some of the ACA changes that have been made. I think the issue of how far can the president go without specific congressional uh, uh, action is, uh, is, is brewing in the, the background somewhere. But we will see. We will see. I want to thank all of our guests on Law Review today, uh, Judge Kenneth Bedell, Attorney John Fisk, and Attorney Wendy Patrick. Thank you very much for being with us. And I understand that you're speaking as educators and not as representatives of your office. We also thank our producers, uh, Jim D. Park, Katrina Julian, along with Megan Wright and Sarah Cady. We invite all of our listeners to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or by visiting lawreview.podbean.com. We enjoy hearing from you, so send us a message also on lawreview.podbean.com. Until next time, this is Steve Smith saying Happy New Year and all good wishes for 2014. The Law Review stands adjourned.